Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And this morning, I want to talk to you about motivators for Christian living. Motivators for Christian living. In Acts, we learn how the first Christians lived. The very title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles. It's an account of what the apostles did, of what the apostles said. We've been talking about power, about that mighty power. It tells us how they did what they did in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. There's a purpose. God has things he wants to do in you and through you. The Holy Spirit lives in you for you. He comes upon you for others. That we might minister to people. They had dunamis. They had mighty power. We saw this last week. Miraculous power. Ten times it's used in the book of Acts. Power to speak boldly, to say what Jesus said. Power to do miracles, to do what Jesus did. That's why every single Christian needs to be filled full of the Holy Spirit needs to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we talked about those terms. So we've seen how they did what they did. This morning, I want us to look at why they did what they did. We're not just filled with the Holy Spirit so we can say, I'm full. God isn't working powerfully in our lives and in this place so we can sit back and say, wow, isn't this wonderful? Though it is wonderful, though we do worship him for that, we are saved on purpose, with a purpose, and God has empowered us, and he motivates us to go out and to do ministry. So as we look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, again, we're going to go through the first 11 verses, three motivators for our service of Christ. Motivator number one, the resurrection. Let's pick it up again, Acts chapter one, verse three. After his, that's Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. I think the New King James says many infallible proofs. In other words, there was no way you could disprove it. It was, it was convincing, it was infallible that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. My question is, as you read that, I've been thinking about it all week. Why? Why many convincing proofs? The word many there, abundant, plenteous. He, he gave them abundant, convincing proofs. Why did there need to be many? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, honestly, we've heard of people who um, they died, they came back to life. When they came back to life, nobody needed proof that they were alive. They were alive, right? I mean, when Jairus' daughter dies and she comes back to life, Jesus raises her to life, nobody's saying, prove she's alive. I mean, she's right there. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb after four days, nobody needs proof Lazarus is alive. All you have to do is see, that's Lazarus, and he's alive. 
So why do the disciples need many convincing proofs that Jesus is alive? What's the difference? Why do they need it? Well, the fact of the matter is when somebody comes, when they die and they're brought back to life, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, people we might read about today, those people are resuscitated. They're brought back to life. Jesus was resurrected. And there's a massive difference between resuscitation and resurrection. I want you to think about this for just a moment, that every time people saw Jesus post-resurrection, they didn't recognize him. It's a very interesting thing. You read Mary in John chapter 20, She's at the tomb, she sees two angels, she's saying, where have you taken him? Where have you put him? Where's Jesus at? She turned to leave and saw someone standing there, it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't recognize him. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. As soon as she hears his voice, she knows who he is. She turned to him and cried out Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher on the road to Emmaus. So this is a, a, a few hours after Mary sees him, which is on early on that first Sunday morning. In Luke chapter 24, there are two disciples. We don't know who they were. Uh, we assume they were not uh, two of the, of the 11 remaining disciples, but they were people who followed Jesus closely. They may have been disciples. They're making their way on the road to Emmaus, a village that is uh, about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, they're talking about what happened to Jesus, they're talking about the crucifixion, they're talking about people saying now he's alive. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Later in verse 30, so he's walking on the road. They spend the afternoon talking with him. When he was at the table, it's evening. They say, hey, why don't you stay with us? He acts like he's going to keep on walking. They sit down to eat. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They run back to Jerusalem. They're telling the disciples who are in an upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews because they're thinking they killed Jesus, they're going to kill us. And now these disciples come back and they say, it is true, he's alive. He has appeared to Mary. He is alive. As they're hearing this story in Luke chapter 24 and verse 35, then the two told what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. This is an interesting statement. If, if I want you to recognize me, 
the first thing I'm going to tell you to look at is what? My face. Right? He says, look at my hands and feet. Tells you something about his face. His face is not the same. Now, we could say that in one sense because Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14. Many were amazed when they saw him. This is talking about him at the crucifixion. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, no one would scarcely know he was a man. That's how badly he was beaten. Back to the Luke passage where he says, look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Then you come to John chapter 20. Let me just set the stage. John chapter 21. And you come to John chapter 21. Jesus is is going to appear to them again. At this point, uh, Peter and the disciples, at least six others, are disappointed. We don't, it's John, it's James, it's Peter. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the way he says it is, is I quit, I'm out. Because nothing's like he thought it would be. I mean, Jesus is resurrected, sure, but he appears and then he disappears and then he appears and then he disappears. And it's just not the same as it was. So Peter goes back to the boat, his fishing boat. He takes six other disciples with him. They're out all night on the Sea of Galilee trying to fish. They don't catch a thing. He's thinking, I'm going to go back to the one thing I know, but the one thing he thought he knew he couldn't do anymore. And so you can imagine dawn breaks on the Sea of Galilee. They're very, very frustrated. And all of a sudden, there's a guy on the, on, standing on the shore, and he calls out to them. He says, hey! How's the fishing? One of them says it stinks. I've got an idea for you. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. Thomas says, I doubt we'll be doing that. (laughs) They put the net. John says, well, what's it going to hurt? Let's do it. They put the net in the water. And all of a sudden, the water starts to teem with fish. And John remembers the one other time he's seen that happen. It was the time he left everything to follow Jesus in Luke 5. And he watches all the fish filling the nets. And he says, this has only happened one other time. And that was when Jesus was around. And he says to Peter, the person on the shore, that's Jesus. Peter, as soon as he hears that, he's like, well, if it's Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get as close as I can to him. He leaves everybody else to take care of the fish. Good old Peter. He's, he jumps in. He goes over to the water. There's Jesus. And when they get there, there's 153 fish that they've brought in. But Jesus already has a fire, and he's, he's making them breakfast. That's where we pick it up here. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? That's an odd statement, isn't it? Why would they even be tempted to ask that? Because he doesn't look like he used to look. That's what I'm suggesting to you. They knew it was the Lord. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after they were raised 
from the dead. Then we have another example. This time he appears to the to 500 people. Paul tells us after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. So the 500 people who saw him at the same time. Most scholars believe that takes place in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, we read this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. I mean, what's to doubt? If Jesus is alive, if Jesus looks the same, then what's to doubt? I mean, if he's got the nails in his hands and his feet, the nail prints, uh, why are they doubting? And so here they are, they are looking, and then we read this in verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said. So some of them, they're seeing him from a distance, we don't know exactly how he covers the distance from where he was to where they are. Some believe, some commentators believe, he actually floated to them, which would be really far out. Wouldn't that be cool? But he may have walked to them. We don't know. But as he gets closer, then Jesus came to them and said... So at that point, as he comes to them, as he speaks, their doubts are erased. Now all of this, just simply to say, what exactly is happening and why don't they recognize Jesus? What is it about Jesus that is different? I want to suggest to you, they don't recognize him because now he has a resurrected body. He is different. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised and what kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow. It's a very interesting thing. When you put a watermelon seed in the ground, it does not look like a Watermelon, right? It doesn't look like a watermelon plant. It looks like a seed. It is different. It's planted in the ground. Paul is saying that's how it is with the resurrection. What you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Jesus has a resurrected body. He has that spiritual body. He is the prototype. He was the same, but he was different. What are you and I going to be like? We're going to be the same, but we're going to be different. You're going to look like you, but you're going to look like a different you. You say, well, how will I know people in heaven? The Bible says in that moment, we will know even as we're fully known. You're going to know everybody in heaven. How do you like that? You're going to know people you never met before in heaven. You're going to know Moses, and you're going to know Elijah, and you're going to know Paul, and you're going to know Peter, and you're going to know that person that you gave commissions. You paid for the well in Burundi, and somebody drank water, and they came to know living water. You're going to know them. You're going to see them. They're going to see you. They're going to see a wonderful version of you. 
I mean, you say, what's that going to be like? I don't know. It's going to be a new and improved you. Turn to your neighbor and say, as good looking as you are, there's a better you coming. I mean, it's just true. I mean, I'm excited. Instead of giving people a high four and a half, I'm going to give them a high five. I mean, I'm going to get that thing back. It went right to heaven. I'm getting it back. The disciples would need to understand Jesus was not resuscitated. That's what the liberal theologians say. Oh, the grave was cool. He just came out and he came back to life. His face would have been very much disfigured. They would have had no doubt that was him. What they saw was not a resuscitated Jesus. What they saw was a resurrected Jesus. They would need to understand there is such a thing as a resurrection because our entire faith hangs on that. You say, what do you mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Literally, that word useless in the Greek means empty. If there's no resurrection, we're wasting our time. The joke's on you. You should have gone to the lake. I'm glad you didn't. If you're watching from the lake, way to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's see. Your faith is useless. It's empty. You see, what the resurrection says is that the sacrifice was accepted. What was the sacrifice for? Our sins. On the cross, he who had no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It is the resurrection proves God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus accomplished what he came for. And we apostles would all be lying about God for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, guess what? You won't be raised. It makes that argument later. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is empty and you are still in your sins. Literally, you're fixed in your sins. You are a sinner for all eternity, trapped in your sin, doomed to an eternity in hell. If Christ did not rise from the dead. The entire message hangs on the resurrection. In order to preach a resurrection, in order to lay down your life for a message of resurrection, you've got to believe a person was resurrected. And Jesus spent 40 days giving them many infallible proofs, many convincing proofs, showing them a resurrected body, a body that could do all the things a resurrected body like his did. He could pass through walls. He could be here and be there. He could do this. He could do that. He was Jesus, yes, but he was a different Jesus. He was a glorified Jesus, and they needed to understand he wasn't just resuscitated. He didn't just kind of die. He went down to death, hell, and the grave. He resurrected. He is alive and he is a glorified, resurrected, risen Christ. And as a result, we're set free from our sins. 
Listen, Jesus had to convince them about the resurrection. Number two, responsibility. Not only is there a resurrection, but there is a responsibility. Acts 1.8, we're back there again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. The Greek word is martus. We get our word martyr. You'll be my martyrs. You'll be willing to lay down your life for the message of a resurrected Christ. You'll be willing to lay down your life to tell people about Jesus. You'll be bold enough to say, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. I love them. It's not that I'm callous. It's just that I'm committed to sharing the good news of Christ. And that is only possible when you have power. There's a lot of Christians who are chickens. You're afraid to talk to people, afraid to share Christ, afraid to be bold for Christ because you don't have power. When you have power, when you're filled full of the Holy Ghost, when you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, you will have power that will take you. I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert. I don't care if you know how to talk to people or are afraid to say one word. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, he will empower you to do things that are beyond your own ability. You'll tell people about Jesus. And he says, you're going to tell them in several areas. First of all, you're going to be my martyrs, my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea. In other words, you're going to take the gospel to those closest to you. That makes sense, doesn't it? No need to talk about going overseas to share the gospel if you can't share the gospel here. And Jesus is so wonderful, and having met him, we, we know the power of salvation, and we know the, the, the fearfulness of eternity separated from him. We know there's a real heaven. We know there's a real hell. We want people to spend eternity with Jesus. Jesus says when you have power, you're going to share, Jesus. You're going to share the message of the gospel with people around you. Because honestly, you can't keep something as wonderful as salvation to yourself. And even if people don't want to hear it, you just keep on telling them because you understand there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a coming judgment. And you don't want anybody to be there. So you just tell people. You tell your friends, you tell your family, tell your neighbors. You look for people to tell. Kind of like one of our pastors on Wednesday night, he, after the service, because honestly, it was such a powerful service, so, so he just said, you know, wow, it's so powerful, I, I need to just go tell people about Jesus. So he went over to a come and go and had a dialogue with two atheists who wouldn't let him pray with them, and so then he went to McDonald's, there wasn't anybody there, so he went over to Taco Bell, there were three guys there, he walked over to their table, they happened to have been in the service, they were so overwhelmed by what they experienced, None of them knew the Lord. All of them gave their heart to Jesus Christ. Listen, that's the power. That's the power we're talking about. You'll receive power. There are people all over the place who need to know Jesus. When's the last time you walked into a place and said, I wonder who in here doesn't know Jesus? And Lord, would you give me an opportunity to talk with them? As you're going into the grocery store, as you're going over to the new Costco, as you're waiting out on the benches at Lambert's, as you're, whatever it is you're doing, wherever it is that you're at, 
And you're thinking, man, I, I, Lord, there's got to be, I'm, I'm, I'm on divine assignment. There's got to be a reason why I'm here. Who is it that you want me to talk to about the Lord? And how about every now and then going fishing? How about every now and then just saying, I mean, this is foreign to a lot of people. A lot of people just don't ever think about it. But how about saying, I so want people to know Jesus. I'm just going to go for a little ride and see where I can find the person who needs to know Jesus. If the pastor doesn't do that on Wednesday night, three young men are not going to find Christ as their Savior. I mean, while the Spirit of God is stirring in their heart, and you never know, and I never know, when God is working and what God is doing and what God wants to do in somebody's life. So Jesus says, you'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses, and you'll start where you're at. You'll witness to people right where you're at. But if you don't have power, you won't have the courage to be a witness, and you won't do anything for Jesus. That's central to his commission, his command, which is go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's not for preachers, that's for everybody. Everybody has a responsibility to share Christ with everybody. And when you're full of power, it changes how you view that assignment. You move from one of of dreading, a place of dreading it or thinking, I can't do it, to a place of, I can't wait to see what God does. Because when you're full of power, you realize what's happening in you is it's not you, it's the Holy Spirit working through you, and you're so full, freely you've received, freely you want to give, and he just comes out of you as a river of living water. That's what we're talking about. That's why everybody needs to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, because everybody, God's design is that everybody would share their faith everywhere they go. And you know, listen, as I'm saying this, some of you are saying, you know, this just, it just seems very radical to me. The reason why is because very few places will preach it. Uh, you know, listen, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm really happy you're here. But if you started coming expecting to be coddled, you'll hate this place. I mean, because I'm not, I, I mean, the Bible doesn't coddle Christians. We come for Christians. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cut it straight. I'm not, uh, listen, I'm, the Bible's really clear. You got to go. Everybody's got to go. And there's great joy in going. There's great joy in being filled with the kind of power that walks in the purpose and the appointments and the direction of the Holy Spirit to pray for people, to talk to people, to pray and have prayer answered. Listen, you were designed to have your prayers answered. You were designed for it. God wants you to have answered prayer. You know, asking you'll receive. Jesus said, why? That your joy may be full. One of the reasons why Christians aren't very happy, some of them, is because they don't know much of answered prayer. The more you have answered prayer in your life, the more you're like, this is like blowing my mind. This is like crazy. This is like amazing. And you're just like, wow, look, God's doing this and he's doing that and he's doing that. And that's what God has for you. He wants you to know the joy of a supernatural walk with him. Well, we're going to, uh, to the places nearest, Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria. Sar Samaria represents the people who are near you but not like you. People who are different, they don't do things like you do. They don't see things like you do. Perhaps they don't even like you. 
They're different from you. When, for the Jews, remember when, when John and, and James were with Jesus and a Samaritan village didn't want anything to do with Jesus because, because he was a Jew. Here's how John and James felt about it. They're like, Lord, do you want us right now to call down fire? We'll just crisp those people. That'll show them. And Jesus is like, that's crazy. So now all of a sudden, they're going to Samaria and they're sharing the gospel because when you're full of the Spirit, you're not only going to share people with the gospel with people who are near you, you're going to share the gospel with people who aren't in your social, social circle, who don't share your political values, who don't share your worldview. You're going to go because, hey, everybody needs to know Jesus. And third, to the ends of the earth. The gospel isn't just for America any more than it was just for Israel. The gospel is for everyone everywhere. Listen to this, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Every, the gospel's for everyone. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So we go, we make disciples. And then it says in Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So we're going to preach the gospel everywhere. That's the responsibility. And I mean, honestly, that's why at J James River Church, we put a real premium on, on seeing people come to know Christ. We give an invitation every Sunday because every Sunday there are people who need to know Jesus. We're, we're involved in missions, church planning in the U.S. We're, we're, we're about helping people who are trying to reach people across the country. We're helping motorcycle chaplains and prison chaplains and people that are running missions and people that are doing outreaches and people that are planning churches. We're, we're helping all kinds of people reach people in the United States. And then we're also helping missionaries, uh, almost 500 missionaries across the globe and, and, and trying to, to give them the resources they need to continue to be involved in reaching people for Jesus Christ because Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's our responsibility. Yeah. Number three, the return. The return. Acts 1-6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking, okay, let's talk about you being king because we'd really like to rule and reign with you. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Would you notice, he's not saying there's not a time he's going to come back and reign. He's just saying it's not for you and I to know. God has given us everything you and I need to know to faithfully serve him right now in this day and this time in which we live. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to think about what might happen in the future, but we have to be careful that we're not so focused on end-time events that we lose sight of present-time responsibility to share the gospel with people around us. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, they were looking on. So they're walking out east of Jerusalem. They're going up the Mount of Olives. As they do, they were looking on 
he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So he starts to just ascend and there's a cloud that comes, maybe forms around his feet and lifts him up. Maybe it forms as he's going up and they're sitting there and they're looking and watching and they're thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Man, that's pretty amazing. And then all of a sudden they look right beside them and there's two angels looking up there with them and saying, yeah, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? He's way up there, yeah. He's coming back the same way you saw him go. Look at it. It says this, and while they were gazing into the heavens and he went, behold, I mean, can you believe this? Two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's gonna come back in the same way. Jesus described his coming this way. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. He's coming again. Not only is he coming again, he's coming soon. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. And if it, was, if it was quickly back then, it's even more quickly right now. That's why we have a responsibility right now to tell people the good news because the time is short. He's coming back. And we wouldn't want anybody we love to miss his coming. You say, when do you think, people ask me all the time, when do you, I know we're not supposed to set dates, so when do you think he's coming? He's coming soon. What signs do you think need to be fulfilled? I think there's only one sign to be fulfilled. Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'll tell you what, we are really, 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 really close on this. They figure that in the next 10 years, every spoken language on planet Earth, every spoken language group will have a portion of the gospel in their language. I'm not saying in 10 years he's coming, but I'm just saying it's, that's how close you are. That's how close you are. I mean, we're really, really close. The gospel is right now because of, of the incredible missionary movement of the last hundred years. I mean, it has circled the globe and we're really, really close. And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, you also must be ready. We want everybody to be ready. Are you ready? Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. How does a person get ready? Well, in this parable, because Peter says, Lord, are you speaking to other people? Or are you speaking to us? And Jesus says, who is the, the wise steward? He's the one who's busy about his master's work when his master comes. Readiness for the believer is you're carrying out your responsibility to share the gospel. Readiness is saying, listen, 
this is what really matters. I'm going to share the gospel where I can, and I'm gonna send people to share the gospel where I can't go. I'm gonna be ready. I'm gonna make Jesus my priority. He's gonna know when he comes that I was looking for his return, that I was ready for his return, that I was serving him with all my heart, that I was full on for God. That's when you know you're ready. I think as well, you must be ready. Have you given your heart to Jesus? We talk all the time about, you know, every week, and there's some, and, and for whatever reason, you've heard an invitation, you just not responded to the, invita the invitation. That's a real concern to me because there's coming a day when the Christians are gone. When he comes, the Christians are gone. They're in heaven. We're all in heaven. And if you haven't given your heart to Jesus, you're gonna be on earth and it's gonna be a very, very difficult time. In fact, Jesus put it this way, unless the, those days had been cut short, in other words, unless they had been limited, no one would have survived. That's how, I mean, hey, Hurricane Ida, as bad as it is, child's play compared to the tribulation. You can't imagine when demonic beings are unleashed on the earth and Satan is cast down to the earth and Satan is at that point running the entire thing and it's cataclysm after cataclysm because God is judging the earth. You can't imagine what that's going to be like. I can say this, you don't want to be there. And unless you're right with Christ, you're not ready for his return. There's some, and you would say, you know, well, John, there was a time when I was ready, but I was walking with the Lord, but you know, today you're not ready. In fact, if, if Jesus were to come today, scare you half to death, the thought of that, because you're not sure you would go in the rapture. Why in the world would you want to live there? I mean, he brought you here today because he wants you to hear the word that you need to be ready. The only way to be ready is to, to give your heart to Christ if you haven't, to rededicate your heart if you're away from him, and to be actively serving him if you're a believer. Jesus says, you want to be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. One more scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. And just boom, it happens. And the issue is, are you ready? Because there's not gonna be much more warning than we have right now. I mean, all you have to do is look at the earth and you say, wow, we are really, really close to the return of the Lord. And that merits a response of faith that says, I wanna be ready because he's coming and he's coming soon. And every single one of us needs to be ready. I wanna be found doing his work. I wanna be found full on for him. And I want everybody who doesn't know him to come to know him so that together we can enjoy eternity with Christ, amen?